Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We found this statement online, claiming the recent sabotage of a prison construction site. It says, In 2016, voters in Paulding County, Georgia, approved a new $77 million adult detention and law enforcement center. Turner Construction, a subsidiary of German corporation Hochtiff, is managing this project and subcontracting the work to local businesses and construction, and it's well underway. Early on the morning of November 4th, we entered the construction site and disabled two front-end loaders, one drill rig, and one excavator. The keys were in the ignition for all of this equipment, so we relieved the company of those. We then moved to the field offices for the project, where we were able to shut off the power to the site and disable two golf carts and a pickup truck belonging to the company. At the time of this post, four days later, one front-end loader and the drill rig are still out of commission. Work was delayed by several hours on the Monday following the action. No rest until all are free. Fire to the prisons. Thanks to a legal settlement, the Sheriff of Palm Beach County, Florida, has announced that it's terminating solitary confinement for teens held in the county jail, according to the Palm Beach Post. The youth detainees had been confined to a 6 by 12 foot cell for months. They called it the box. Those inhabiting the box were not permitted to listen to music, watch TV, or have any human contact. They were offered no education and were confined for nearly 24 hours a day in the cell, which contained only a metal cot, sink, stainless steel desk, and toilet bolted to the wall. The only fluid available to them was putrid, discolored water from the sink attached to the toilet. They received food on a tray passed through a slot in the cell. One teen prisoner spent 16 consecutive months in the box, and another spent 21 months there. One inmate, under severe psychological stress, began hallucinating while in the box. This week, we listen to Kathleen Rumpf share her stories of her time inside FMC Carswell, a United States federal prison in Fort Worth, Texas, for female inmates with special medical and mental health needs. Kathleen shares her experiences in wisdom from her time with the Catholic Workers, where she participated in the Plowshares movement, along with other anti-prison activism. She tells us some about the other older women she befriended while incarcerated and the physical toll and negative effects it can have on elderly inmates. I just wanted to to say a few things about my story because I think activism is important. Although I'm I'm not active like I was, but for most of my life at the age of 20, I started um, by living and working with the homeless on the Bowery in New York City. And I was pretty green and I was not involved in any activism except it was humanitarian. But um, it opened my eyes, the suffering opened my eyes in a big way and I felt their suffering and as a result I turned more and more um, looking at the systemic side um, of, of working on issues and I think if I was to write a book it would be America's Hard to Find. I think that would be my book. Um, in fact, Phil Berrigan uh, 
one of the Berrigan. I think he wrote the book, America is Hard to Find. Right? Um, I, in, for the last 30 years, until five years ago, I lived in Syracuse, New York, and I worked in the jail and prison, that, well, the jail, for um, 16 <coughs> years. Uh, and it was a Catholic worker house, and Catholic workers are um, a group of people who are, are people of faith uh, in that they believe in performing the works of mercy feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, um, doing those colorful works of mercy to help make the world a better place. But we also try to address systemic issues and do peace and justice work. And in this jail that I worked in, I had just been out of prison. I did two years for a plowshare, as a plowshare person. Um, so I think Amarius, but a plowshare person is, is somebody who enfleshes um, Isaiah and Micah's message of hammering swords into plowshares. And um, it's a, it is a movement of people who internationally have taken hammers to nose cones of weapons um, and tried to take the fight into court and in, in near Syracuse, there's an Air Force base named Griffiths Air Force Base, and there, uh, the B-52s there were being fitted to carry cruise missiles. So there was a group of us who, who thought for, for a year, who prayed and, and, and thought about um, thinking about doing this kind of, of witness, and Ramsey Clark helped us. Um, he helped us write an indictment indicting the whole chain of command for war crimes, which we pasted on that B-52 because it was being fitted to carry cruise missiles. So there's an interesting point in this. Um, we were charged with sabotage, but we were acquitted. And we were charged with destruction of government property and conspiracy. And of course, the hammer blows. You know, you say, well, you know, well, I am. I'm nonviolent. That's who I am. And, and, but that's not nonviolent, you know, and you know, wasn't that sabotage, or what's that all about? But when you think about, you know, property, what is proper, what is enhancing to life, what is, what is all this? And I'd, I thought about the ovens in Germany, and I thought about, you know, the people. What if the people had just gone to Germany and taken the ovens apart? That's all we're trying to do, is taking the ovens apart, you know, before they're ever used. And we laid our symbols and our hammers, and we put pictures of the children and wrote Thou Shalt Not Kill on the B-52 that was being fitted with first strike weapons, cruise missiles. And um, so I did two years for that, came out, uh, started doing jail ministry. And after a few years of working in our jail in Syracuse, I heard about something that was very, very disturbing. And it was a jail, and all jails are disturbing. All jails. and. This was very twisted, and I was driving a, a bus with family members who were going to visit their loved ones in, in prison in upstate New York, the Attico, Wyoming, Windy prisons. And a woman in the front of the bus, and I'm driving, and of course it's snowing, but she says, I was just in prison, she said. And I went, you were, Francis. She said, yeah. She said, you know what? She said, they hung me on the bars. And I said, what, Francis? And she said, yes, yeah. she said, but I deserved it. I was drunk. 
And at that moment, it was like a lightning bolt. What? She deserved it? What, what's going on? And I thought about the jail and all the issues in our jail, really bad. And it was a small jail. And, and she kept saying, yeah, but they hung me. And I couldn't get her to explain it. And I started, started really looking and really looking and, and asking questions. And I finally had a sense of what it was and what they were doing. They were hanging our prisoners naked on the bars, naked on the bars, shackles around the arms and the feet stretched and hung with a Syracuse football helmet on their head to protect their heads from banging the bars to protect. And they called it the Jesus Christ. They called it that. I was, I was beyond uh, affected. I was, I, was, I was just horrified, didn't know what to do. And I'd often been told by prosecutors, Miss Rumpf, there's a system in place. You don't have to get arrested. So I thought, OK. So I knocked on doors, and I knocked on the <clears throat> district attorney or a congressman or the sheriff. You know, I knocked on the Catholic Lawyers Guild. I knocked on everywhere I could think to knock. Either they didn't believe me or they didn't care. I didn't know what to do. And finally, I thought, I'm going to build a cage. So I have a little bit of the artist in me. And I just thought, I'm going to build a cage. So I did build a cage out of PVC pipe and painted it black. And I moved it in front of our jail with a sign that said, low-income housing. And a jail is nothing to celebrate. And I spent 10 days in front of the jail. When I moved the cage to the police station, a few came out and laughed and said, what you, what, you know, and laugh, and I just said, there goes the neighborhood guys, you know, and they laughed, and I said, I'm just going to be out here protesting in the cage, the jails. I didn't tell them about what. I just said, I'm protesting jail conditions, and they said, you can stay out there in the rain as long as you want. So they didn't underestimate me, but the power of truth. I think the power of the truth, and... Um, while I was in the cage, I got so many stories. And it became a place for people to tell their story. That's the thing about activism, too. When you get out there, it's like it's saying, don't just stand there, do something. There's also, don't just do something, stand there. That's what Dan Berrigan would say. You know, stand there, put your body there, because you don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes it's so magical what people started coming to the cage, and there were the, the homeless from this place called the Acres nearby who came. The Vietnam vets came to guard me. Meanwhile, they're in the corner sniffing glue, but they came down because they wanted to guard me because they knew I loved the homeless. And um, other people came and told their stories, whether it was police brutality, whether it's what was going on in the jail, whatever it was, you know, there is, you think about, there's no place for people to tell their story where people listen to them. It just became a real celebrated sacred space where we could talk, and it was beautiful. And out of that, um, I got enough information. And I, I went home, and um, I all of a sudden heard a, a radio program from uh, Physicians for Human Rights was on National Public Radio. They investigate torture all over the world, but not in America's. We don't torture, no. Well. I called them up, and I also called up 60 Minutes. 
And I, I gave them the information I had. I continued with the leads I had. They came in to do the story. And Physicians for Human Rights went on 60 Minutes, calling it documented torture, the first case of documented torture. Bo Biden even worked on the case. He was in law school at the time um, at Syracuse University. But I have been arrested more than 100 times. I always say not enough. Um, I, I have five felonies. I'm not saying that because it's something like I'm so proud of, but I've been there in the trenches. And uh, when I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, I had been arrested at the School of the Americas at Fort Benning, um, which is an army school that trains soldiers in torture, assassination, counterinsurgency. And there were a few of us who were arrested protesting the torture. And we got this judge, and anyway, we. I, I had a year at Carswell. Only oversight for the Federal Bureau of Prisons is Congress. What can be more frightening than that? They're the ones who make the laws. They do nothing. And even the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department has no jurisdiction over the Bureau of Prisons. They're an entity to themselves. And um, do any of you know where the Federal Bureau of Prisons for, uh, for the women was located before it got to Carswell? Um, somebody might know, but it was, it was Kentucky. Before Carswell was moved to Kentucky, the GAO, the General, Office, G General Accounting Office, had made recommendations to not move these prisons or Carswell to a military base. Congress was told Bureau of Prisons was told to not move it, but move it they did, and to a military base. And it happens to be in an area of the country that's so conservative in the courts that should you try to bring lawsuits, it is extremely tough. And it's, it's deliberate, too. Um, going into Carswell, you have to drink the water. The officers are ordered to bring their own drinking water. So. God knows what I was drinking, but when I first went in to the prison, um, well, I didn't really walk in. I flew in on a Learjet. I had gone first to Danbury Prison in Connecticut. And while I was there, I was fighting and causing trouble because they say that the, the Bureau of Prisons complies with the American with Disabilities Act. They don't. And at Dan, Danbury Prison, they, you have to stand in lines for everything, whether it's meals or pill line or, so in the freezing cold in Danbury, the only way you can get your pills in a pill line is to walk up two flights of fire escape that's steel. Now, there's a lot of elderly at Danbury. For me, I didn't have the braces on my feet, but I had the knee replacements, and my mobility was, was not the best. And so two flights on ice and snow, it's terrifying for me and for so many of the women, and damn cold. And so I started saying, but, you know, ADA issues, ADA issues. And I had a lawyer who came in. And so the head of the medical had a talk with me. He said, what do you want? I said, I want accessibility. He said, well, we do have an inside door that you can use. I said, if it's not for everybody, it's not for me. 
and he signed these papers and you're going to Texas. So um, I, I didn't know when I would leave, but the night I left, they said, pack up. And they drove me to a hospital. The van told, drove me to the hospital. And there was a woman who had been in my unit, um, Joanna. Joanna uh, had been in prison for many years for a bank robbery. And she was a, she was, she was a sweet woman. And she, had, she was in my unit, and she'd gotten sick, so I walked her over to medical with her other friends. There were maybe four of us. She wasn't feeling well one day. So we walked her up the steps. They told her to go lay down back in her unit and rest. And we took her back, and that night she stroked out really bad. And they took her to the hospital, and we never saw her again. When they came to get me to take me to Carswell, we first went to the hospital to pick up Joanna, and they said that, you know, they took her off oxygen at the hospital. They did, didn't expect her to live all the way to Texas, that if she died en route to Texas, that they had to land the plane uh, wherever she died. But Joanna lived, and I saw her on that, this little Lear jet, you know, it wasn't too big, but I saw Joanna pulling against the restraints, and of course she's shackled, to a gurney, um, but she did live, and we both arrived at Carswell Prison. And so walking in the doors, uh, first thing they did was remove my shoes, my um, orthopedic shoes, and said if I needed them, they would give them to me. And they mailed anything that I had with me back to, my, uh, back to Syracuse. And it was, um, it was an interesting place. It's, a, it's an old army hospital on the base and very shiny floors. And, you know, I looked and, um, and, and I don't know, there was a lot of sick women. And once I stayed there little, I could, I could really see, you know, women in different stages of cancer. And um, I went to the library to find a book. And I had met a few of the women. Once in a while, I would try to sit with Joanna if they would let me. Um, and I noticed there were very few books in the prison, and I started writing people at home about friends that I was making and their problems in the prison and, and their health issues. And they would write me and say, what can we do? And I said, um, I was at the library and there's no books on um, health and wellness, none. And here's women who are wanting these kinds of books to read about on, on, on this kind of stuff. I mean, they have no information. They're in prison, they're afraid. Some of them are dying, you know. And I put in a request asking if I could have my friends send me books on wellness and, and it was denied. It was denied. And the, of course, the longer I stayed, the more I saw. And it was, it was God awful. Now, if you walked into to Carswell, you would look at the shiny floors and everything would look really great, but also very sterile. And you'd go into the housing units, and you notice, wow, I mean, there's no clutter. It's, I mean, it's kind of impressive. But then, you know, I'm looking, and you get one small locker. Everything you own belongs in a locker. So there's women doing 20 years or more, and it's like they don't exist. You can't have a picture of your family, your spiritual guide, your, your children, your husband, your mother, your father, you can't have a picture on the wall. You can't have anything out. 
everything goes in the locker. You have this small cot, and it has to be made like a, a military cot, you know, kind of. And it looks like nobody lives there. So you live like you don't exist and like you don't matter. The warden was six foot tall. He was a psychiatrist. And I'm convinced that they play a lot of mind games. Well, I experienced that. I experienced it. And um, for instance, in the mail room, I had a sister. She asked me what kind of magazine I'd like. And I said, well, send me Martha Stewart because I knew it had recipes and flowers, and the other woman would like it, you know, but um, the magazine came. But if there was a perfume page in the mailroom, they would rip it out because they didn't want you to smell anything nice. Everything was blank, everything. And there seemed to be a lot of psychological, almost warfare going on with, with all the stupid rules. Um, one day, the con there were contract workers who worked in the prison, and they all had other women prisoners who worked with them. These are the ones who weren't sick, who went to the prison to be workers. And they came in, and there was this one room that had these, it was two-ton, it was on my floor, two-ton lead cabinets. And I think that this is a, a nuclear room, nuclear x-ray room of some sort, because it was an old hospital. So they didn't give these workers or the women any protective gear. They were drilling and sanding and scraping out these lead cabinets. I have the article on these contract workers. They died. So did the women. Uh, the, the Bureau of Prisons never, uh, never compensated them or their families. Poisoned lives. Never compensated their lives. OSHA didn't come in until four, mo uh, four, four months after the fact. And they wrote a little, oh, you shouldn't do this kind of thing. But these, these people, and they kept asking for answers, and they gave up their lives and to be abandoned and trashed like that. And the women, it, it was, um, there is um, all these articles that, one's called Cruel and Unusual, this great reporter, Betty Brink, um, there's one called, um, this is torture of the powerless. After I got out of the prison, I would go back and camp outside the gates. Yep, you can have this one. And one of the former doctors of, at the jail came out to, as a whistleblower, to out the prison. And what's interesting is the, the prison's on a military base, and the military base knew that I was an anti-nuclear activist, they allowed me to camp on their base, be right outside the prison gates. They allowed me to be there because they know how many ambulances run out of that place. Here's one called cancer cell. They, they lie to the woman. They don't diagnose them because if you diagnose them, you have to treat them. Women who, who come from other prisons don't get there until they might be in three or four stage cancer. Again, so they don't have to treat them. And they weren't given the death sentence, but that's where they get. Um, this one, it, prisons, uh, prison system battering, cruel and unusual. We tried so hard taking the cuffs off Carswell, hospital of horrors, <laughs> fatal judgment. Um, maybe, hopefully, sometime we can get some reprints of some of these articles for people who are really interested in Carswell. Um,
There was one night, too, there was, uh, well, it first started, the women would do the work on building the new units that would go up, and they uncovered some barrels of God knows what. It was a former sack base, and um, they were immediately ordered away from the area, and the trucks came in the middle of the night to remove these chemicals. All of this illegal, but again, there just is no oversight. After I did my year in total, um, they almost kept me for two more years. I had a $3,200 fine, and I said I'd pay it when they compensated the victims of the indigenous people in Central America that were disappeared and tortured by the Army School of the Americas. And um, Martin Sheen, who's a friend of mine and a great activist, very sincere, came down and paid my way out of the prison. He came a, a few times. And then um, when I got out of prison, I went to Congress. And I was lobbying Congress around health care issues. And Martin said, I want to come with you, but the filming of the West Wing lasted all night, so I ended up on my own um, lobbying Congress. But um, right before I lobbied Congress, I have this article. It says here, the director at the time of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Dr. Kathleen Hawk Sawyer, testified under oath that they know that three out of four women in prison don't belong there. This is the head of the Bureau of Prison testifying under oath that they know three out of four women don't belong in prison. They know this. And you know, in terms of, of activism, for people like ourselves to go inside the prison, how important it is. But you know, you also don't have to go to prison, sometimes building a cage, or um, sometimes just standing alone and going somewhere there and being vulnerable. Well, now we have our phones. But that re that's something that really can draw a lot of attention, too. And people look and they kind of respect the, fa the fact that you're, um, you're out there and you believe in something and you're doing something. I mean, that's, that's worked when, when I've done that by myself at the Pentagon. And the generals will even stop and talk to you. But this was a friend of mine, uh, B, who had polio and was in the prison. I only have two more stories. So she had polio. <coughs> And she was in a wheelchair, but she could pivot and get up out of the wheelchair by pivoting on one foot. And, but she got an infection in the foot, and they wouldn't treat it. And she sent memo after memo to the prison. And I'm going to leave this up in the front if you want to take a look. But this is her foot. After she was released, she sent me pictures of her foot. That was her foot. Um, and she, it was amputated. The, the health care in the prisons and jails is really awful. We always heard rumors that they were taking life insurance policies out on some of the women in the prison. Who knows? It makes sense to me. But, you know, maybe there's, there's some that's just going to die, you know? I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past them. One day I was in my dorm and a 78-year-old woman came in. 78, never arrested. Her name was Savannah Means from Birmingham, Alabama, really sweet. She was about this tall, and she was okay. She'd had a stroke, but was okay. And I said, Savannah, what are you, what are you doing here? And she said, well, her grandchildren were involved with drugs, and she wouldn't cooperate with the police. And what happened was they had tapped her phone, 
when they are doing the drug arrest, they come with the first, the ones who are involved. The only thing that had happened with Savannah was one day, her phone was tapped. She didn't know it, but her grandson had called her. He was coming over, and she said, no, don't come over today. She said, the police are all over outside. Now, what black grandmother doesn't tell her kids to stay away if the police are outside? So she was arrested, and she got a sentence of 8 to 12 years. And there were 16 grandmothers in this prison doing, including B, doing 8 to 12 years. We have no idea of the face and the story of the people in prison. We have just no idea, and they don't make it easy. It's so beyond our line of vision. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.